talk about poetry, where working poets gather to discuss poems they like, are impressed by, annoyed by, or are otherwise engaged by. There are always interesting moments in our unfiltered conversations. I'm Bob Hurz, publisher and one of the editors of Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books, along with poet Steve Casisto and Andrea Scarpino. Nine Mile Books and Magazine are the sponsors of this podcast. We publish books by David St. John, Michael Burkhardt, Ralph James Savarese, Diane Weiner, Matthew Lippman, and many others. You can order our magazine and books online at ninemile.org. Today, we offer a reading by Sam Pereira, author of a new book from Nine Mile Press called True North and Untrue You. It's a terrific book, as you'll find out from his reading. Okay, I'd like to do uh, a reading of some of the poems that are included in my new uh, book that has recently been published by Nine Mile Press. And the book is called True North and Untrue You. Um, I'll try to say a little bit about the poems I'm going to read as we go along. And hopefully shed some kind of light on some of them. The first one is actually the opening poem in the book. It's called When the Government Lands in Laredo. And it was written about two or three days after the um, one of the many shootings that this country has become known for. Uh, Then-President Donald J. Trump decided to take a little side trip to Laredo, Texas. And um, this poem followed, and I believe it's fairly self-explanatory. When the government lands in Laredo. A good cowboy song, yes, and a follow-up of horse shit. Lying there on the streets of Laredo, that's my story nothing more. If you're looking for the president who is not my president, he's the one with his finger on these joint sessions of criminal madness. You might wonder how he does it, wearing his clown suit of hair and bad ties, until you hear him whispering to a woman who could be his daughter as she passes by the outdoor stage at just the correct moment. I have the greatest bad ties. Then a short middle finger to her and the world she buys her ice cream truck ice cream from. He unashamedly howls that he loves Laredo. He loves ice cream and the shit that rests in the middle of these ancient streets. He's been joshing with us since he got here. He loves saying the word joshing. It gives him street cred in Texas. He loves it as much as he loves you. This next poem slightly changes pace. Uh, I've written several poems in the last 20 or 30 years um, honoring my father. 
This is the most recent of those. It's called Elegy for the Roses for John J. Pereira. And it involves my father's love for roses and gardening in general. And uh, we both shared a love for roses, but that's where it kind of ended. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of yard work. He was. Elegy for the Roses. The smell of death and candles is all I remember today. That and the fact the priest was from Malta and kept telling everyone, look at the calmness in his face. All I saw was the coldness of your dark forehead when I bent to kiss it. The pale light that came from the underneath of your eyelids. You made me dig weeds and cut the lawn, water those damned roses in the summer, in the heat. Your favorites were the red ones, wondrous and beautiful, like the woman from Texas who said yes in 1948 and gave you me in 1949. You laughed when my fingers bled from the thorns, another gift that now, as old as you were when you died, I appreciate. You watched as I tasted my own blood, blood as red as the Chrysler Imperial that bloomed every year on the side of the house. I swore I would never deal with nature again, when I got older, never break out in hives from the allergies that cutting lawn brought on. I was wrong. I'm grateful. I miss having to disagree with you at the table about watering times, about the Vietnam War, and about why the comics you thought funny, I thought disastrously dull about as funny as the smile the damned priest insisted was on your face in death. Goodbye, Father. I'm going to tell my students now how good you were, how flawed, how important. I have, so far, mastered flawed. I'll show this to my wife tonight, the one you never got to know. I'll show this to my dog. Your crazy son, the poet, misses you sometimes in the middle of the day. Your crazy son smiles at the music you left him. Father, the music. The music smells like roses. Growing up, I, like many of you, I would suspect, had animals in my life. And I, as many of you, tended to get very uh, close to those animals for whatever the reason. Uh, this sort of 
traces my life by way of uh, connection to uh, the dogs and cats that have been part of my life over the years. It's called Recalling the Animals. And it starts with an animal that we had when I was just a little kid, maybe five years old, who basically stayed outside. And it progresses through the rest of my life to today. Recalling the Animals. The sheepdog from childhood who had the soul of a hunter and was loved in spite of his chains. The gray cat who would drool on your pillow in the morning because your mother thought it was a clever way to get you out of bed and into the kitchen. The goddamn chihuahua who hated you almost as much as you hated her, but in a mysterious chihuahua kind of way. The yellow Jeffrey, named after Smart's cat, who one day jumped to his death just to get away from the isolation you left him with each day as you traipsed off to work. Your current animal, who is not an animal at all, but your boy, wanting to walk along the old path with you, headed in the direction of the lake and its countless rainbows of trout. This next one, um, we live in a, in a strange place these days, and one of those strange things that seems to be going on is the inacceptability, unacceptability, of uh, historical statues and things like that. And I understand all of that, um, but when I wrote this poem, it included in the title the word antebellum, and I gave some serious thought to changing the title because, you know, one must be politically correct these days. And then I thought a little more about it, and I said, no, uh, this is a poem that needs that title. Political Antebellum. I listened, and the cowboy band was okay. At the start of the next war, we knew a man's incisors, or a woman's for that matter, would be put to the test every day. A startled child in the street with a dog that seemed to honestly love her. A memory of Southeast Asia, where I never served, but there, nonetheless, all sweaty and bothered by the dark rooms where young girls had been forced to give in to evil in its starkest costumes. Now, a president who by the very nature of his smallness, might in a moment of jocular oblivion decide to bring in the fireworks during an off month, like August, when Americans sweat the most. He'd been a concern for several years now. When people prayed, which they never admitted, they prayed for their old God to take pity 
and cast this imposter, loafer, son of a bitch, into a fire of some metaphorical significance. A really horrific blaze where his eyes explode, leaving vapors only the deceptive rich can fathom. Goodbye, we might say in unison, tanks rolling over the streets, their huge metal dicks on display. Here's the thing. We will never be victims of these brutal shenanigans again, antebellum, southern, or otherwise has been put to rest, along with all the other finite disgraces, in a tower now nameless forever. It has been decided just in this lifetime to be the new law. The cowboy band just walked back on stage, regaling us with horses and gals and petticoats from the town's general store. The world has dodged a bullet. The arts are back in the times. Lenin once belted that the war was over. He'd be sipping tea, save for a mad cartridge that night. In the 1950s, when I was just a very young boy in California, um, one of the things I recall as being a fairly regular event was the United States testing nuclear weapons in the desert in Nevada, which none of us really understood, except that we did know that the um, result was a lot of that dust from those blasts found its way into California. And, uh, you know, we were out playing in that air every day. This is called During the Adolescence of the Nuclear Age. <clears throat> Excuse me. Frost was probably the first one I remember noticing as here one day and gone the next. I blame Kennedy for that. I was perfectly happy trying to breathe in the air just arriving from Nevada. Nuclear clouds hung over our sun-bleached homes. Eisenhower could be ignored by anyone and even a boy of eight. But Kennedy brought us overcoats and scarves and old men in the snow. At that moment, I believed every real answer was somewhere on the moon. Then Frost died. Then Kennedy took Marilyn off for a ride in the sky. It was simple. Horses and women and snow. My theory that radical radiations from some forsaken nebula would hold the dead accountable for nothing seemed flawed. It had come to this as I briefly stopped looking. A major player in the arts began to speak. 
the paper plates containing beautiful black beads of caviar, unstrung rosaries bedeviling the rich, someone cooed, mixed with those stupid little crackers and were immediately set down on the folding tables. The entire place listened. Here, one day, gone the next. Kennedy had believed and here it was again, mirrored in these black eggs. And see, every night the wind blows hard across the darkest salt anyone's tasted. Kennedy rises, walks over and takes hold of Marilyn's legs, pulling them east versus west into the politics of the new afternoon. This next one I really don't have much to say about. It's a love poem, and it's called Method. In the years I've known you, you have always been the one to traipse into the moonlight, wearing only a necklace and a smile. I like that about you. The necklace usually reflects the lake-like shimmer in your eyes or the hot pink lacquer adorning those charming feet. Let's say I'm in love with you. Every twig I step on magically repeats your name. It's bad drama, but it's ours. Sure, I'm in love with you. And this becomes my final chance at convincing you. Are you ready? Take your necklace off quickly now and make love to me before the film crews show up to take shots they will turn into posters for every theater across the contiguous universe. Right there. That's it. Kiss me slowly into the applause. This next poem um, deals with a, an American poet, and it also deals with um, the way we as an audience, I guess, um, are attracted to different things. Um, in sports, some people like the Raiders, some people like the 49ers. In um, music, for as long as I can recall, you fell either on the side of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, depending on where your head was at at any particular moment. And in poetry, uh, poetry written by tragic women, and there have been a few, as there have been tragic men, uh, people seem to fall on the side of Sylvia Plath or Anne Sexton. Sylvia Plath probably being the more, you know, the one that's considered by the most people to be the, the better poet, I suppose. 
I've always been on the side of Anne Sexton because Anne Sexton had a a grittiness and a reality to her and a toughness to the end that um, I never really saw in Sylvia Plath. They both killed themselves, but, you know, it becomes a, a question of how they lived and died. This is called Tragic Cigarettes. And yes, I come down on the side of Anne Sexton. I was watching an old video a couple of decades ago. Anne Sexton was lounging around the house. The film was in black and white. And there was a certain permanence to that long gray ash clinging from her clinically tragic cigarette. I confess, for a moment, I wanted to be that cigarette, coated and wet with one of the Revlon reds it had absorbed into its filter. I anticipated some perfect suck of poet's air. Does this make me crazed, perverted in a literary sort of way? Would she insist on a fine mahogany fandango before taking herself elsewhere just to spite me? These are the questions illness brings out in the rain. She'd say, this is my gift to you. Along with, we have finally discovered the truth. Honestly, you men are all alike, she'd whisper taking in more smoke. I love you anyway, she'd say. Goodbye, she'd say. I'm yours. My um, genealogy is largely Portuguese. And in that knowledge, I, you'd think I would have learned how to speak the language at some point. I grew up around it. As a kid, I could have learned it and um, didn't take the time, wasn't particularly coaxed into it, so I, you know, I didn't bother. But one of the most beautiful words in the language, I still think, and it's a word I used to hear a lot when I was growing up, as my relatives were talking to each other, is the word amanya. And I think even today, I think it's one of the most beautiful words in any language that I've ever heard. Amanya is Portuguese for tomorrow. So I take that and I, I create a person out of that. I give that person the name amanya. Years ago, while staring at a plate of sardines in what passed for a winter sun, the old thoughts returned. How on numerous occasions, under the direction of a bass guitar, my head filled with a darkness even Melville might have envied. I had walked the perimeters of this small town most of my life, 
sometimes knowing that cars might come out of nowhere, sounding horns, the split second before ending my lusts for a scotch in the night. I thought about the anguish some saw in being alone. I picked one particular evening, face dashed with the blood of my follies, and sat, just sat on a curb, dreaming about making love with the sea, her salt and infinitely wet glances bouncing off my forehead and off into the afterbreeze we'd shared there. If I had been lucky, if I'd seen the clouds as the ocean's gray mascara designed to wear me down and take me, I might have been okay with that. I might have said in the slumber of love that she, my beloved Pacific, had given me a daughter, Amanya, wearing the haunting silver of sardines. I have led a slightly different life than some writers have, many writers have. I was lucky enough to have gone to uh, graduate school at one of the great universities in the, in the country, the University of Iowa. And I, from there, did not go into teaching. I went to work in a small uh, general store kind of atmosphere, a farm supply store in my hometown. There were a lot of reasons for that. I was not particularly um, acting like a, a good human being in those days and um, had a lot of problems that I had to deal with and come through. But I earned a, a decent living there and I took the job seriously and I did okay with it for 21 years. This is a poem where I go back and I remember kind of some of those things. So if you're not familiar with farming or the dairy industry, a lot of this stuff will be not very clear to you. Let me explain briefly. Paraquat is an herbicide that was fairly commonly used back in the 70s. It was, uh, most people know it because it was used by the government to get rid of marijuana plants um, back in the day. <laughs> but it was also used as, a, as an herbicide in, you know, in everyday farming needs. It's mentioned in the poem as are some products that were used in the dairy industry uh, to take horns off of cattle. Uh, to treat them for, to treat cows in particular for mastitis. Uh, we also sold fee, uh, foods that were ethnically oriented, uh, Portuguese foods primarily. And um, anyway, all of these things end up in this poem. And, you know, it was a very important uh, third of my life, I suppose, as important as anything else. 
and um, maybe not in an academic sort of way, but it it had some serious impact on who I am today. This is a poem called Memoir. In the old days of Paraquat, men would come in and buy dehorners that looked like they were made in and for the Middle Ages. Also, plastic syringes to stick up the tits of cows in order to treat mastitis. For the soil, a vast array of alfalfas and oats, so the livestock could forage into their old age. Let's not forget those rectangular cardboard boxes containing acid to manually fill the cells of batteries from back in the day. Once finished, people could stop at the front of the store, step into the walk-in refrigerator, and buy cheeses, Portuguese sausages called linguiça and morcela, the all-important ovos to go with them, and frozen meats from the room further back at the end. So why am I thinking of this now? My father went there every day for over 30 years. I did, too, for over 20. And if you think of he and I as a kind of Venn diagram, 50-some years of baffling old-world merchandising in the making, and yet the only thing I truly come away with from any of it is this. My father, one day having had enough of another man's bullshit, put up his fists right there on the sloping cement floor. It was glorious, I'm not ashamed to say. And, yes, of course, he kicked the other guy's ass. As I recall, back when PCs and PC were nowhere to be found in the vicinity of what was then thought possibly heaven. We all have poets that we um, find particularly necessary in our lives, poets that we learned from uh, many poets that we learned from directly, poets that we knew and loved. This is a case, this is a poem about a poet who had a very big effect on me and my writing. And I never met the man. I, I, and yet I feel like, you know, we would have been friends. We both had similar problems. This is called The Importance of Richard Hugo. He's the guy stumbling to his car when he shouldn't be. He's lost everything, including his hair. He loves love in the presence of others and has fallen on more than one occasion for the maneuverings of a woman named Liz. If I had a dime for every time I had thought that I was him in a darkened bar in my youth, 
I'd be a wealthy man today. That time I rolled into the sun, missing one shoe, and having lost the only copies of my work, as well as someone who was never mine to begin with. Well, that was the time Richard spoke to me, there, next to someone's morning paper. My soul floating above me, shaking its head, as souls have been known to do. He said, get yourself a cheap car, go fishing, and the rest will take care of itself. For those of you old enough to remember Walter Cronkite, I don't need to do this introduction, but I have a feeling there are a lot of you who don't know who Walter Cronkite was. Walter Cronkite was the nation's newsman at one time. He was the anchor for CBS News during the some of the 60s, the 70s, part of the 80s, I believe and was responsible for what a lot of people remember about the history of those times. The title of this poem is Walter Cronkite versus the Magnetism of Rap. And the reason for the title is I'm in the poem, I'm talking to my students who, for the most part, were junior high kids. And uh, so you're, you're thinking of a class of 12 and 13-year-olds, basically. This didn't happen, but it could have. Walter Cronkite versus the magnetism of rap. Today is Walter Cronkite's birthday. Is he a rapper, my students want to know? I tell them I once saw him cry and lick the tears off his glasses while in front of an entire nation. My students nod as though a bus had just flown past and they kind of like the diesel it gave off in the wind. More, they say. If he wasn't a rapper, did he at least text inspiring filth to his girlfriends in the dark of night? He didn't have a phone, I say. In fact, everywhere Walter went, you could hear the sound of teletype machines in the background. What? They are combative now. No one capable of fame like that would ever be without a phone. Yes, I say. That was Walter on both good and bad days. He had a mustache and was mistakenly assumed to be gruff for most of his time on earth. You're kidding, say my students in unison. No, no, I am not, and that's the way it is, goddammit. That's the way it has been since Walter told us Kennedy was dead. This uh, next poem needs a little bit of ex explanation. Um, 
my wife got a new computer about, oh, maybe a year or so ago. And in the first few months, we had some problems with it. I like to consider myself reasonably, eh, more than reasonably, computer literate. So I was trying to take care of some problems that she was having with it. And uh, unfortunately, she still maintains an AOL account, something I gave up decades ago. But it's the way it is. Anyway, um, part of the problem she was having had to do with AOL. And coincidentally, about the time I was trying to figure something out on her computer, we got a phone call presumably from an AOL representative, um, probably because I had clicked on the wrong website for help, which happens. Anyway, this guy wanted to help us, and he wanted to help us by taking over the computer, and I thought, well, you know, he's from the company, so sure. Big mistake. Gary from AOL is the title of the poem, and Gary was also very Indian, and uh, if you've ever called, and I don't mean this in any kind of negative way, I really don't, but if you have reason to call for, for service involving something technical, you're probably going to get somebody from a foreign country. And in particular, in this case anyway, this person had a very thick accent and a very American name. Gary from AOL. I remember the sun being there at that particular moment during an almost clean slate of new year. Life had become this constant reverie of possible breaking and entering. Like insurance guys telling me the sun might be the death of everything I believed in the most. Also, watching those who claimed to be of God stepping on the poor along the way. But I digress. The sun was there. There were no clouds. Then the phone rang. It was Gary from AOL telling me I couldn't get signed on because of viruses and would I let him take control of my machine just this once in order to fix the problem. Why, of course, Gary, I said. I trust you, being all the way from India and probably starving in Mumbai. Gary took the wheel. Gary placed a nest of hardy little beetles into the operating system, telling me he could see everything was loaded with viruses and malware from online shopping. No, Gary. And by the way, how many Garys live in Mumbai? Anyway, the shouting match began right about then. You're a fraud, Gary. A fraud. Fuck you, Gary. And the call ended. Damage done. Years later, I'm looking at the son who is telling me its name is Gary 
and its job is to keep me online forever with the idea of heaven. I trust no one anymore. Not even you, Gary. Much of my upbringing involved Catholicism. It took me a long time to step away from that. And uh, it's still something I, I revisit on occasion, usually not in a very nice way. It's just who I am. This is called a reading from the book of Samuel. This is going to sound a little strange. I met her at the Stations of the Cross on a Good Friday, back in the day. I believed she was only a vision then, being 2,000 miles away on the Windsor-Detroit border, while everyone else in the pews did their best to transform their fears into the pain they suspected he might have felt on his walk that day. This mist and I glanced at the stained glass images of a man in peril of being remembered as a walk on water kind of guy. This was long before holograms came to be validations for all the dead rock stars but she could have been a serious contender. I didn't see her again until my predicted downfall and resurrection had been completed. It was in a room in San Francisco where any true religion goes for sourdough and miracles and the bona fide dangers of love. The last poem I want to read is somewhat longer. It's called In Lieu of Flowers. And um, it was originally written, I guess, to be the last poem in the book. And it's not because uh, I've got a second wind. <laughs> In Lieu of Flowers. Watching Berryman for the fourth scored time today made me think of Lincoln and how he'd been thinking of jumping before being shot. Over the years, one learns injecting poisons into lovers often results in sons not being talked about with regularity or mischief or despair. It just was, you know. Face it. I began thinking the world was my stake, and while I ran my finger into its garlicked blood, I swear it smiled back, told me what a great lover I'd become since college, invited me to lick wholeheartedly. 
make it rhyme beyond the clouds. With an invitation like that, who could say no? For 40 years, we went dancing. The Copa, the Ecstasy Room, Frank's Place, now a bus stop in a small California town known for its Portuguese and Italian gangs, bent on swinging rosaries like knives into the honesty of the valley's air. And now, apologies are due. Brothers and sisters, I am sorry. I'm not sorry. I do it all again, once more at least, and time it to converge with when I first inhaled and was in fact in love. We divorced, of course. Jenny was a whore, but God, so in my face lush about it all. I wrote, I wrote about the blue tattoo placed inside her thigh, how the world scattered her perfumes through the bars of North America. I stayed, planted my clearly unworthy ass inside the very booth that enveloped Dylan Thomas in the 50s. All the same, justice was jest, I said in fits of rage one night. Later, at a table in a strip club on the outskirts of town, I ran stark thoughts by strangers, then lost them in the snow. Regrets, Sinatra sang, but then again, Sinatra never killed himself over a woman, unless Ava was arriving with the tide. I amused myself with this. Sometime during my forties, I turned stable and clean. A joyous nature to behold. Flesh at such a weary age, I thought. I kissed her leg. From there, yada, yada all night long. Comedy repairs the selfishness. Love keeps long enough so no one ever thinks to take it back. Someone says, I'm dead, and you know. I know. I know she's here staring at the mahogany shelf I'd placed the books of others in. She's decided to include mine, along with me, to fill her quiet days. Once the cocktails all kick in, she'll walk downstairs and place her mouth against the silver urn. Old times, old times, and almost like old times, I'll let her go. Thank you all very much. Buy the book, True North and Untrue You, published by Nine Mile Press. Thanks again. This is the Talk About Poetry podcast, sponsored by Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books. We hope you've enjoyed this production. Our music is by the late Bob Perry, an Emmy Award-winning musician who lived and worked in Syracuse, New York. Thanks to all. Thank you.